All right, two weeks away from finishing out the book of Galatians. I know that that seems, we've been in it for a long time, for, for being six chapters, but I, I, uh, I'm excited about just how practical it's been and, and how it's changed my life. My hope is, uh, and it's made me a better pastor, my hope is that it made me a better Christian. It's changed me, and there's, there's things I've learned in it that have given me great insight and depth of understanding. I, my hope is is that you also have gained in it as well. Uh, just to let you know kind of where we're headed, uh, I'll be gone to Africa the two weeks after Easter, um, but when, when I come back in uh, May, we are going to begin some very... Uh, well, I'm just going to call it this. We're going we're gonna to begin a series kind of developing our core. If you've been around the church for more than a year, you're in the minority. So we really have a brand new church uh, in this last year. And so one of the things that um, we really need to do is help def- not, not just define, but help build the, the vision of the church and what the church is striving to be about, what we need to be about based on the Bible, what the Bible tells us we need to be about. Um, we need to kind of work that into each person. And so uh, that will kind of be, give us a, a more formalized membership process than what we have had in the past, and it will become a foundation for membership classes in the future so that as others come to be a part of our church, they'll have membership classes that they can take part in and really gain a deep understanding of what the vision of the church is to be about so that they're not bringing the baggage of their old church that they left or maybe their old understanding of church and trying to, to shape us, but they'll come and be a part of us. And we'll kind of assimilate them like the Borg. You know, we will take them and make them one of us. So if you're if you're not into Star Trek, I know that just it's not okay. Never mind. Move on. Back to Galatians. Let's talk about the Bible because that's much better. Um and won't make me look as big like a big nerd. Um here I'm gonna tell you a serious story after trying to be silly. Darian Albert was, and maybe you recognize his name, he became famous back in 2009 when um, his death, his beating to death was caught on video and shown on news, on, on, on a news channel. He lived in Chicago. He was an honor roll student at a, at a junior high there and just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and the thought is that he was actually trying to help a friend of his that was caught in this street brawl between two different groups of people. And Darian got beat. I mean, it was... The, the, the things that happened to him are, are horrendous. It's tragic. And because of who I am and my curiosity, I had to go look him up and see what this was about and I'm thankful that they blurred out the video that, that so that they're not celebrating in his beating but you can tell this is a vicious vicious event a violent event well, the sad thing about this is that that story his story he, he was killed on September 24th 2009 his story is not an isolated incident the reality is is that Chicago is had had become known to be one of the most violent cities in all of America. Uh, the FBI said that it ranked 24th in all of the United States for the highest number of violent crimes. And 24th sounds like, you know, that's not really that bad, is it? I mean, really, 24? 
Well, there's about 20,000, between 20 and 30,000 cities in America. So I, I, that doesn't sound that good either, you know. I mean, um, that, that percentage is not that great. But what happened out of this, and, and really because Chicago had become so violent, really, is it wasn't just the death of Darian that drove a man named, I'm going to forget his name, Gary Slutkin, to act. Gary is an epidemiologist. He studies disease and the spread of disease, and he began to look at violence as a disease. And so he began to apply some of the principles that he would have applied, say, if it was um, polio or AIDS or any other infectious disease. He, he was seeking to control the spread of violence. And some of the principles, you can look him up, he's, he's founded an organization called Ceasefire. It, it's been going now for about four or five years. It, it was the violence in Chicago had begun to escalate. It was things like Darian's death that had caused him to do this. But they founded this organization and built it on three principles. And those principles are identifying the root cause. So they're looking for the root cause of violence. They're seeking to interrupt or intervene in the behavior, and then they're going to strive to change the behavior. And as I heard about this, I actually saw it on a documentary and, and did the research on the side. Um, but, but as they, as they, <clears throat> the thing about this that interested me is that in the four or five years that they've been doing this, they have seen a drastic change. I mean, it is drastic. Chicago is much safer today. It's still, you know, out of 20,000 cities, it's still up there. But it is much safer today. In fact, in the neighborhoods that this organization worked, they saw anywhere from a 45 to 75 percent, I believe is the numbers, percent drop in violent crimes and shootings alone. And in some of the cities that they were, or some of the neighborhoods they worked in within Chicago, they were able to stop a hundred percent of the retaliation crimes. Like, so say for instance, say for instance, somebody comes and shoots your brother, rather than you retaliating and shooting them and their brothers and their sisters, they stopped a hundred percent of that in, in some of the neighborhoods they worked. They saw drastic change in these neighborhoods. And I was interested by that. It, it intrigued me. But not because they, they were just seeing results. I mean, I appreciate results. Don't get me wrong. But what they were doing and bringing about change really sounds a lot like what Paul was striving to do in, in Galatia as he wrote this letter. He saw a problem. He identified a problem. What was the problem? The Galatians had been, they, they had come to a place where they had believed the gospel, but now some liars and some false preachers had come in and begun to tell them lies and tell them to follow rules to impress God and to earn their salvation and to stay saved. They had to do these certain things. And so he went to the root of the cause. But the root of the cause wasn't necessarily the false teachers. The root of the cause was their fallen nature, and that's what he began to deal with, especially in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He interrupted or intervened. He, he didn't sit back and do nothing as he watched this group of people that he loved dearly suffer and make bad choices and do things that would lead them away from grace. And he sought to change behavior. 
But there is a big difference between what he was doing and what ceasefire is doing. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying anything bad about ceasefire. I think it's a great organization. I, I think that I'm glad they're out there. I'm glad they're doing the things they're doing. I'm glad they're seeing great results. I think that Christian people need to be involved in, in organizations like that to make a difference in our culture, to see our world be a better place. But everything that ceasefire is doing is temporary. It only lasts for a time. And it's really all motivated with people at the very center of it. You see, the difference is driven not by the approach or the methods that they were using. The difference is driven in the ultimate goal and the tools that you use to get there. The difference is, is that Paul had tools that brought real power to bring real lasting change that wouldn't simply come in and from the outside do some work, but that would come into a people and from the inside of them change how things happen. You see, Paul's tools are different than sitting somebody down in a class and, and giving them education and psychology and, and trying to help them see how selfish they are. Paul's motive, or I'm sorry, Paul's tools were the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Is he going to talk about psychology? Is he going to talk about they, they need to think differently? Is he going to challenge them to consider where they've been? Absolutely. But if that's all he has to offer, he's asking them to depend on themselves. He's asking them to find the power within themselves and, and, and look to themselves for the answer. But Paul came with something much more than that. He came with the truth of the gospel, the power of life that's in the gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit making that gospel take effect and, and change people from the very inside of them out. And that's really what we came to deal with as we, as we talked about how the Spirit changes us and, and how the fruits of the Spirit are different than the, than the works of the flesh and how the motivations that, that well up inside of us and are built up inside of us happen as a result not of us just figuring out the right answers and doing the right things, but simply sitting under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's His work. He's made us new. He's given us something totally and completely different within ourselves. Galatians has told us that we have been given a whole new nature, that we are different than we were. Before, we were fallen and we were fleshly and that's all there was. But now we are sons of God, children of God, connected in deep relationship to the Creator who, who made us. No longer slaves, but free to be the people God created us to be. And all of that a result of God's work in us, not by our own power or our own methods. It's all started within us. And then when Paul began to talk about that and began to talk about the differences of who we are inside ourselves, he turned that and then said, now those differences that well up inside of you, those differences that the Spirit works in you, you need to apply in your life outside of you. It's kind of like a water hose. I mean, you, you can do two things with a water hose and a flower bed. You can water the flower bed or you can spray it everywhere but the flower bed. 
you have the opportunity to water the flowers. You, you are in a place, you are in a unique position as believers in Jesus Christ to do something that no one else really has opportunity to do in the world outside of Christ. You have opportunity to live and walk in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to see His good not only in you, but then flow through you. And so then in chapter 6, he begins to break it out for us and tell us, this then is how you should act. Now that you're this new person, now that, that, that you're this new creation and, and you are different, you're going to have different desires. You're going to have different things that you love and enjoy. I mean, when, when I wasn't a Christian, I loved getting drunk. I mean, I just did. I, when I drank that, I got drunk. And that's what I wanted to do. In fact, I, I don't like alcohol enough to drink it just for recreation and just to sit down and have a drink, I, I had to find a drink that I could deal with. And then I drank enough of it as fast as I could to get as drunk as I could so that I could have a good time. Does that sound, I mean, that sounds crazy now to me. I have no desire to be drunk anymore. I, I don't. I don't I, it's totally different. When, when I was not a Christian, the way I approached music and listened to music is totally different than the way I approach it and listen to it now. And I'm not going to tell you that it's not wrong to have the bands that you like. I don't hear me saying that. But I don't, I just don't get the same joy out of turning on a, a station, a rock station, and listen. Well, one of my favorite bands uh, as I was growing up was I really enjoyed Pink Floyd. I don't, you know, I was, I was a drunk and I did drugs that I shouldn't have done. And so, I mean, the reality was, what do you do when you're drunk and do drugs is you listen to Pink Floyd. That's what you do. And, you know, sometimes I'll listen to it and feel a little nostalgic. But it doesn't hold the same thing for me anymore. I'd much rather turn on a, a song that praises God. In fact, as I was driving this week, I, I typically listen to, I, I, I almost don't listen to music anymore. This is going to make me a bigger nerd in your eyes. After the Star Trek thing, I don't know if that will matter. But I, I, don't, I listen to talk radio. I, I don't, almost don't listen to music anymore. In fact, I don't even listen to talk radio. I listen to preaching. It's just what I listen to. It's what I enjoy. It's just who I am. But I didn't always enjoy that. But I, I noticed as I was playing some music in my truck this weekend as I drove, I, I was struck by flipping through the radio stations and passing up songs that I would have stopped on before. You see, my desires have changed. And wanting to hear a song that praises God and really sings glory to His name and gives me an opportunity to sing along and just, and just with my words and with my mind be focused on it. My, my desires have changed. Your desires as believers in Jesus Christ have likely changed. You have this new opportunity. You have this new person inside of you. But we are called to direct that person. We are responsible now to choose to live as that person should live. And that's what Galatians chapter 6 is all about. Paul closes Galatians 5 saying... If we are alive by the Spirit, that means if you're a believer, if you're alive, if you have hope in the Spirit, if you have been saved, then you are to walk by the Spirit. You are to choose to no longer live according to the old nature, but according to the new. And so that's what Galatians 6 is all about. And so we're actually not going to, we're, we're going to read through all of it today just to keep it all in context, uh, because we went through the first uh, seven verses, or the first six verses last week. I'm just going to read them 
give you one little comment on each of them, but we'll move on and we'll focus on verses 7 through 10. If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. Other verses will be on the screen. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul wants us to know that we're to confront one another as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to confront one another with truth. We're to come to one another and tell truth and speak truth to one another into one another's lives and see people restored from sin. So if somebody comes to you and if they're doing it with the right spirit and right mind and, and they come to you and say, hey, man, you shouldn't be doing that. Don't be offended by that. Don't be bothered by that. That person actually is taking risk probably because they care about you. They could be judgmental and be a jerk, but, but if they're doing it with the right purposes and the right reasons, they are doing it out of love. Second, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The, the next thing is that he says, bear one another's burdens. Now, this is interesting, and I didn't bring this up last week, but I want to make sure you see it as before we move on from it. Is first, he says to confront one another with truth. Then he says, bear one another's burdens. Our sin, the struggles of life, the difficulties we face, that's bearing burdens for one another. That's coming along and sticking a shoulder underneath the, the issues. And what he's referring to is demonstrate grace to one another. Demonstrate the unmerited goodness that you've been given. So he's talking about approaching one another in two ways, with truth and with grace. And John tells us that this is exactly how Jesus came to us. He came with truth and grace. And so I think it's imperative. We are acting like Jesus when we do these things. Then he says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And so here we see God telling us to examine, or Paul telling us to examine ourselves. It's not ever our job to look in somebody else's life and determine their motives. You can't do it. It's impossible. Now, I try to. I'm just going to be honest. I try to. And I tell my wife all the time why she's doing something. I tell my boys all the time why they're doing something. And they tell me I'm wrong. Come on, I know I'm right, but that, that, that's beside the point. I can't really know that. You know, I, I can't really tell somebody what their motives are. Neither can you. And so it's okay. It, it, but, but, but the reality is, is that we can look inside ourselves. We can see inside of our own hearts and examine them in light of God's truth. And that's what we're called to do. And then he says in verse 6, he says, Let, each, let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who, is te who, who teaches. And so he tells us, take care of pastors, take care of your leaders so that they can better take care of you. This is a, a two-way street. It's life in community. It's life living and doing life together. Uh, around you, you help one another. You, you bear burdens together. You reach out to one another. You confront one another with truth. And, and in spite of a negative response or in spite of some some sin that you know maybe it's not time to confront that person you bear with them you deal with it with them you don't you don't just walk away because the reality is is that people are accepting you in all of your brokenness and all of your eccentricities and all the weird things that you do that you think are totally normal people are bearing with you so you're to bear with them and when, and, and when we begin examining, we're to examine ourselves, we're to examine our own hearts, and we're to take care of our leaders. That's, that's how we begin watering the plants instead of spraying the water everywhere but the flower bed. 
That's the idea. This is the direction that the Spirit is striving to move us, is working to move us, and this is how we respond. This is how we put that into action. And that's not all. You see, Paul goes on. He gives us two final instructions before he closes the letter. That is to not give up and not be deceived. And this is where we're really going to spend the bulk of our time. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. This is a huge problem for us. We buy into lies all the time. I mean, really, if you think about the problem that we face in our life, this is at the very heart of it. From the very beginning, we have been deceived. In the garden, what happened? They had it, they had it, they had it great, man. They had a relationship with God like we have never known. They walked with Him in the cool of the evening. How many of you have walked in a garden with God in the cool of the evening? No, we, it doesn't happen like that anymore. It's different. And why? Satan tempted Eve. And what did he do when he tempted her? He deceived her. He lied to her. And we've been buying lies ever since. In fact, the, the Bible teaches us that, that in Romans, Romans 1, it teaches us that, that as Paul gives the history of man, the reason for God's wrath is it's not Satan's temptation. It was that we didn't worship Him as God. We didn't glorify Him. We didn't thank Him. But rather, we exchanged the truth for a lie. We've been deceived. And we've been buying into lies ever since. Buying into lies that tell us that we have the power within ourselves to do this effort and to make this change and that we can make everything better. Buying into lies that tell us that the power is within us. Buying into lies that, that, that make us believe that, that this is it, that our whole reward, that everything that we can be given and enjoy is right here in front of us. In this world, we've been buying into lies, thinking that, that the, the, a big bank account or a big house or a, a perfect family or, or all the things that we desire in our life, that they're our answer. Those are lies. And Paul says, do not be deceived. And really, I think it's especially applicable because you think about what was happening in Galatia. They were being lied to. It was a false gospel. False means it wasn't true. It was a lie. Do not be deceived. And last week I shared with you three sources that we find our temptation. Well, these, these sources of temptation are the very sources of deceit. In fact, when you think about it, the reason we're tempted is because we're being tempted by something that's not true. It's the world. People around us. I'm sure that you've been lied to before. I mean, certainly you've experienced someone lying to you. Certainly you've lied to yourself. And your flesh, the old nature, the person you were, makes you believe you're better than what you are. That's why Paul says in, in the verses previous, he says, anyone who thinks he's something when he's nothing, come on, that's foolishness. That's why he says, examine yourself in the light of God's truth. 
because you need to see the truth about yourself. You need to look in the mirror of God's Word, and you need to see that reflection. You know, I, I see a skinny guy when I look in the mirror. Not really, I don't. But, but, you know, come on. I mean, there's people that do when they're way bigger than they are, and they see a skinny guy. Some people see it the other way, and they see themselves as way worse than what they are. The truth is, is that we need to look in the mirror of God's truth. We need to see who we are. And our flesh, our flesh, our hearts will deceive us. So we need to be careful. And the enemy. I've never given this enough attention. I've never thought about this enough until just a few weeks ago when I began to recognize that some of the temptation I was dealing with was completely spiritual. That God had delivered me from a sin and I'm still dealing with temptation because I'm dealing with it from outside myself. But it's not the world. And it wasn't just my flesh. It was being thrown at me from outside. And so when I began to deal with it in that perspective and I began to pray Christ to, to send the enemy away, to, to deliver me from that, and it was gone. And I've got a freedom I've not understood or ever experienced. I don't, I don't even deal with it. And when it does come now, I simply say, Christ Jesus, I do not want this. Please send them away. And I'm, I, I am honestly telling you, I, and this is, I, I can't, I, I don't know how big a guarantee to place on it. I'm just telling you that this has changed this temptation for me and this problem and this issue and this, and, and this sin. It's no longer even on my radar, except that I know how to deal with it when it pops up. And it's not once, not once have I continued to deal with it after I prayed to Christ. Don't deny that there's a real enemy out there trying to deceive you. The Bible calls him the father of all lies. He is the great deceiver. He wants you to be deceived. He wants to continue having you buy into these lies and finding your hope and your faith and your trust and your, and, and your, and, and your um, joy and your satisfaction. He wants you to find that in everything but Christ. Paul says, do not be deceived. Well, why should we not be deceived? There's plenty of reasons why we shouldn't be deceived. But he brings in this idea. He says, God will not be mocked. Think about this. God is not going to be mocked. That means that you can't fool God. You can be deceived but God can't be deceived. You can't pretty yourself up and, and the ways that you act and change these things and all of a sudden begin to act as if you've got it all figured out and all of a sudden people begin to think, oh man, God's doing this great work in this person's life and wow, look at how different they are today. We can change all kinds of things on the outside. But what we can't change is what's on the inside. And the difference is our motivations, the reasons we do it. I was in a discussion this week, and some of you are on, on this Facebook group, and you'll know about it. And so I'm not trying to defame this person or, or say anything bad, but, but this person was struggling with the idea of loving God simply so he could get joy. If you love God because he's going to bless your life, then you don't love God. You love yourself, and you want God's blessing. That's the wrong motive. That's taking the water hose and spraying it out here on all this other stuff, growing all this other stuff up. 
Walking by the Spirit loves God simply because God is God. And you see Him as God. Yeah, recognize what He's done. Man, that makes me love Him any even more. He is such a good God. He is a, an amazing King. He is a beautiful Creator. I love God. But if I just want His blessings, have I really loved God? I, I think that motive demonstrates that we're lying to ourselves. Do not be deceived. These things, that, that this love and, this, and this, this new motive comes up. Remember, it's the fruits of the Spirit. It's His work in us. The reason we can experience joy is not because we do enough for God, but because God loves us so much that He wants to give us joy. He does that work in us. He gives you joy. You don't earn it. You don't make it happen. I mean, what happens if all of a sudden I'm loving God enough and I'm joyful and everything around me is going like I want. What happens? What happens when it all falls apart? What happens when you can't pay your bills? What happens when you wreck your car and kill your spouse? Or what happens when your brother's in a gang fight and is beaten to death on the street? What happens when your world falls apart if all you can do is love God for what He can give you? You're going to quit loving God because you're not getting joy. Don't be deceived. Don't buy into that lie. Our love is given to God not because we even have love in us, but because love has been put in us. The Spirit does that work, and then we are called to then exercise and use that work. And see, that's the idea. That's, that's why we stand in a unique position, because we can now use these fruits of the Spirit and no one else has that hope. No one else can do that. He says, what you sow, you will reap. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. You're going to sow what you reap. Don't think that God's sitting in heaven ever fooled by your false motives. Don't ever think that you're sitting in heaven, that God's sitting in heaven not knowing that you're committing some sin because you love that sin. Don't think that God doesn't recognize when you find satisfaction in things other than Him. Don't, don't think that. God won't be deceived. He can see all the way into your heart and He knows the motive for which you do things. He knows what you are sowing and you're going to reap along with what you sow. You're going to reap in accordance with what you sow. You see, this is, this is really a basic agricultural concept. I mean, there's nothing, nothing too big or deep here. You put tomato seeds in the ground, you don't get cucumbers. It doesn't happen that way, does it, John? John plants every year. Does it work that way? Have you ever had a cucumber come up where you planted a tomato? Absolutely not. A farmer puts in the ground what he expects to, to, to see come out of the ground. That's the way it works. And that concept applies to us as well. And see, if you're sowing, he says if you're sowing from the flesh, if, if all you're doing is working in the flesh and always satisfying the flesh and its desires, then you're going to reap the flesh and the, the results of the flesh. 
You see, it's not just going to be sexual immorality. It's not just going to be fits of anger. It's not just going to be dissension and division and problems and drunkenness and orgy. It's not just going to be that. It's not just going to be those works of the flesh. What it's going to be is absolute corruption. And ultimately, the word in the Christian sense talks about condemnation and devastation. Our flesh, the things that our flesh has to offer, the things that we, that we drum up in ourselves will only ever lead us to death. I don't care how many church services you attend. I don't care how many good deeds you do. I don't care how many things you think you've done to prove that God should love you. I don't care because they are meaningless. Hear this word, believer. Your flesh will provide you no hope. Do not be deceived. It leads to destruction. It leads to corruption. And sure, you're going to see evidence of that all the way. All the way to the very end. But in the end, when you, when you approach Jesus and you say, Lord, Lord, look at all that I've done in Your name. I've cast out demons. I've taught Sunday school classes. I've, I, I got circumcised. I, well, whatever it is you did for selfish, fleshly reasons, He's going to look at you and He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. The flesh will lead you to corruption. But the Spirit... The Spirit alive in us doing a work, making us new. You see, this is, this is it. It's why it's so important that chapter 5 has to come before chapter 6. Chapter 5 has to come before chapter 6 because it tells us of our new nature and the work of the Spirit in us. And it tells us that that's the source for everything we do in chapter 6. If we took chapter 5 out of Galatians, then all Paul would have done was replace the teaching of circumcision that the Jewish people were laying, or the Judaizers were laying on them with his rules to follow to be good people. He would have just given them a different law to follow. But he puts chapter 5 in because it talks about this new nature, this new identity, this new work that goes on, this new person alive in you by the work of God through his Holy Spirit. And now he says, you the believer... You, the believer, you can do good things. And you can sow to the Spirit. simply means that you strive to live under His influence. You see, Paul isn't talking about salvation by works. He's not talking about a person coming to a place where they, they work their way into salvation. And Paul is talking about works in response to salvation. Paul's talking about a person made new from the inside out and it changes everything about them. Their desires inside and their actions outside. He says, don't be deceived. You're going to reap what you sow and if you reap from the flesh, you will get what you deserve. He says, if you sow from the Spirit, you're going to get what you didn't deserve. And this is the reality of it. Because of who, our, who we were in our flesh, we didn't deserve God's grace. And Paul's not talking about karma. He's not saying go do good things and get good things. Go do bad things and you can expect bad things to happen. This is not, uh, oh, I can't even think of the name of that show now that's on. The guy runs around doing all these good deeds. My name is Earl. I couldn't hear anybody else. Thank you very much. 
my name is Earl. I mean, this guy, he's out doing all these good deeds, you know, and he's trying to make good things happen in his life. And when he screws up and doesn't listen to karma, man, karma gets him. You see, that doesn't really work that way because, I mean, think about it. There's all kind of people that do some pretty evil things that, at least from our perspective, seem to be blessed. Not everybody that's rich got there by honest means. I mean, really. You know, there were leaders in the church and the, and the church during the Middle Ages that they actually killed for their position, popes that took office in the Catholic church because they had somebody murdered. I don't think that's a good way to get that job, but it sure seems like a good job to have. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not. You know, they, they probably have their meals made for them. They probably, they probably don't open any doors, you know. they got a cool house to live in. Sure, I'm saying that seems like they just got it made, right? You know, the, the reality is, is that karma's a lie. I'd like to say something different about it, but I promised my wife I wouldn't. And there's really good people that strive very diligently to live by the power of the Spirit. And they struggle every day. They don't have big bank accounts. And even if they could, a lot of them are given in more way than what they should. Maybe by our standards. And they're doing these good things and, and, and they don't have a lot of time to sit around and just do the things. They, they, they can't have a whole list of hobbies a mile long because they're doing too many things to serve their brothers. You see, and they can't have all this spare time and all this energy because they're spending it on loving one another. And they experience bad things. And they have friends killed in car accidents. And they have uh, family members that disown them. And they have, and they have um, tragic events that they deal with. And they suffer just like the rest of the world. Karma is a lie. But you see, our reward is not here. This is not our home. This is not our reward. Nothing here is for us, ultimately. Oh, sure, we can enjoy God's blessings while we're here. Don't hear me saying that. Don't take this to an extreme. But what I am saying is that the things that He has waiting for us far outshine what this world has to offer. That's the reward. That's the thing we look forward to. That's the reason we hope in Him. Luther and Calvin, they applied this passage, these two verses, directly back to verse 6 about taking care of your pastor. Like they, they essentially thought that there was a problem in the Galatian church that as these Judaizers came in, there's really no way to know this for sure. And so they were taking some assumptions. But as the Judaizers came in and started teaching lies, the thought was that the Galatian church ultimately began to ignore the people who led them. And even as these leaders were trying to call them back to the truth, they were ignoring them and not taking care of their leaders anymore. And I think we can find illustration in that for sure. I think we can see that, yeah, that's, that's a perfect way that this applies. But I think the idea of sowing and reaping goes so much further. It's so much broader, so much bigger than just simply making sure your pastors are taken care of. I mean, the reasons that he wrote this letter, he was not even sure. He, he, he said he questioned it. He wasn't even sure if they were believers. He wasn't sure if everything that he saw happen was even real. Did, did I labor in vain? Did you suffer so many things in vain? That's the, that's the questions he was asking. 
And so I think this applies possibly even to the whole letter, but, but ultimately you consider the questions he asked in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. <laughs> Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. He's not even sure they're believers. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's asking them, how were you saved if you're saved? I mean, how did you start into this life? Was it because you began to do these good works and all this outside activity changed you on the inside? Or did the Spirit come in and change you from the inside out? He, he asked him, um, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How are they going to continue in salvation? How is it that you stay saved? Do you think that if you had to start by the Spirit that you can now perfect yourself? Do you think that you have some power now to, to stand in your own flesh? I mean, think of and listen to the parallels. Spirit and flesh. He's, he's dealing with these two ideas, these two perspectives, and these two natures. Are you really saved? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit and power do so because of faith or flesh? Uh, really, think about that. Think about it in your own life. He's, he's challenging the Galatians to think about it. He doesn't really answer the questions there, but maybe these two verses are answers to his questions. Don't be deceived. Your flesh only leads to more flesh. Don't be deceived. You cannot fool God. Sow from the flesh. If that's all you ever sow from, you are going to reap the corruption and the devastation that comes from it. Or so from your new nature. As believers, what have we been called to? If you are alive by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. It's a choice. There really is no choice. He doesn't give us a second option. He doesn't say, if you're alive by the Spirit, when you feel like it, walk by the Spirit. He didn't say, if, you, if you've got it figured out and you think that you understand, you could probably go off on your own for a little while. It'd be okay. No, he says, walk by the Spirit. Option A. There is no option B. And the point, I think, is that Paul, and he's concluding all of this, flesh only results in more flesh, but the Spirit brings real life and benefit. But he doesn't stop. He gives us one more command. He says, don't give up. Pick it up in verse 9, where he says, writes, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. Don't give up. Another concept from the whole idea of farming. He's telling us about reaping. If we don't give up, he says, don't give up. John, when do tomatoes grow? Overnight? Takes weeks, months, right? Doesn't happen overnight. You don't put the seeds in and go out the next morning and pick the tomatoes. 
It doesn't happen that way. It's just not going to occur. In fact, I remember him talking about what he experienced last year. And last year, he had bugs all year long. And he worked hard. And I don't know, you didn't get very much, did you? It's pretty miserable. God says, don't give up. Paul says, for God, don't give up. Keep going. Work at it. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Keep doing good. See, as believers made by the Spirit, we're motivated by the Spirit, and we are to do good as directed by the Spirit. That's our life. For example, Bible reading. We call it a discipline. It really should be like sitting down. It's it's food from God, you know. I mean, the Word of God is food from God. It's food to our soul. It should be like sitting down and having the best filet mignon that you have ever had. It should just melt in your mouth and it should be seasoned just right. We should enjoy it. But we call it a discipline because sometimes it takes effort to sit down and spend time reading our Bible. It's a whole lot easier to sit down and turn on the TV than sit and read your Bible. It's a whole lot easier to read a novel than to sit down and read your Bible. It's the truth. But that's because our flesh is lying to us. And the reality is is that in our flesh, we're pretty lazy people. You say, I'm going to read my Bible. You sit down and you read it for like two days. And it's not working. I'm still dealing with the same old junk. Come on. Don't grow weary. There's a principle here. Don't grow weary means that you're going to have to keep going. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to commit to it. You're going to have to push through some difficult times. You're going to have to deal with the trouble. You're going to have to weed the garden. You're going to have to get the bugs out of the garden. And you know what? The work doesn't stop until the fruit's all off the vine. It doesn't stop in the midst of the, of the reaping. You get to really enjoy it when it's in your house cut up on a salad. That tomato's great on a salad or on a burger. But that's when you enjoy it, when the work is done. And we live in a world that, man, you can have whatever you want right now. You could get on Amazon and have something delivered to your house tomorrow if you had enough money. You might even be able to order up, I don't know, somebody from Russia. To, yeah, actually, I know you can. You can buy a, a, a wife from Russia. I bet you could have her in a week if you want her. I'm not. I'm in no way advising that. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying we've got the opportunity. We can have whatever we want, and man, we can have it fast. The best fruit takes time. We're called to not grow weary, so that we can see it. There's some good things we can do. It takes effort. Reading our Bible, praying. You you think about it. The disciplines that we talk about around here a lot. Community groups. Part of the vision of our church. Community groups are some of the most awkward things in the beginning. It is weird to sit around in a room with people that you don't know and try to have discussions about things you're not sure that you know about them. There's awkward moments. It feels strange. But you can't go in and in two months think, oh, this ain't working out for me. These people don't like me. I'm not getting what I want out of it. It's because you haven't put anything into it. You're looking for your results today. It takes time. It takes effort. 
Stick with it. Do not grow weary in doing good. You want to see fruit? Don't give up. Other things we can do, the prayer meeting. You know what? It, it, I, I, I was a part of a church that their membership was like somewhere around 5,000. Now, that's not how many people showed up on a weekend, but that was the numbers in their records. Every Wednesday, they had a prayer meeting, and that, in that prayer meeting, there was 15, maybe, maybe 20 people. Out of all of those people, we already got a better percentage than we've just been going two weeks. It's a good thing to do to come and pray with other believers. I'm not bragging on us. I'm not trying to say that there's something wrong with it. I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun. What I'm simply saying is, is that even that, it's great in the beginning. But what happens in six months when it becomes effort to wake up a little early to show up here and pray with people? Eh, you know, my prayers aren't really being answered. I don't know if it's really working. You know, Paul, every time he went into a city, if you read through the book of Acts, every time he went into a city, something you saw him deal with before he saw fruit was persecution. Read the book of Acts and think about Paul and what he had to deal with to see fruit. The guy was beaten up. He was stoned and left for dead in Galatia. <laughs> they, they threw stones at him until he quit moving and they walked away and he's covered up by this pile of stones and they go back into the city and he gets up. And after that, he sees fruit in that city. That, 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 you may have to be stoned and left for dead before you see fruit. Do not grow weary in doing good if you want to see the fruit. Persevere. Commit to it. Other good things? Discipling others. That's a slow process. You know what? I, I, I've struggled with this myself. It's easy for me to look at where I'm at today and with a disciple, with somebody that I'm discipling and, and pouring into, it's easy for me to, to think, man, why aren't you getting this? Look at where I'm at. Why aren't you here with me? Why aren't you, why aren't you as smart as me? Why aren't you as bright and pretty and good as me? That's, that's a lie. That's the work of the flesh. See, the good thing is to recognize that it takes time. It takes effort to see a change in a person's life. It's taken me 40 years. And a lot of that was spent in some stupid, stupid places, doing some stupid, stupid things. And God's been very generous and blessed me greatly. And, and, and I know, I know, not because of what He's done in me, but because of who He is as God. If we work at it, if we strive for it, He'll do very similar and other great things in you. We just have to take the time and the effort to be willing to do it. And see, the principle is, don't as you think about it, is that we can't just start well. There's a, there's a leadership principle. And, and we hear it thrown around a lot these days because there's so many leaders that start out in the church, but then something happens along the way. They get tripped up and they leave because they just can't handle it. And the idea that they, they promote and, and tell us is that starting well is not... It's not what we're called to. We are called to finish well. It's easy to start. It's easy to come in and be a part of a church plant for six months. It's easy to come in and be a part of a small group of people striving to make a difference in Springfield for a few months. 
but you want to see the fruit that's going to be born out of this church, you stick with us. Because God will be faithful. You commit to it. You want to see change in your life, you get up and work to change somebody else's life. And you want to see something happen in your life, get up and be ready to do something in somebody else's, but don't just start and then stop. He says, keep doing it if you want to see the fruit. You don't just start and stop. I mean, there's there some churches, and I'm, I'm not in agreement with this. I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing. It's just the way they do it. They start community groups, and they stop community groups, and they, and they start other community groups, and then they stop them, and they start others. And, and I just don't, I, I don't think that you see the depth of fruit that you can see if you strive to see people build deep relationships with one another, loving on one another, and meeting one another's needs. That's really what Paul's telling these people. Be doing good for one another. Not for yourself, but for one another. And just like the farmer has to stay in it from the moment he plants, actually from the moment he prepares the soil, through the planting process, then picking the weeds, getting rid of the bugs, all the way up to the point that he's picking the, 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 the fruit or the vegetable or whatever it is he's growing, that's us. Do not grow weary. Do not be deceived. Who are we to do good to? He tells us in verse 10. He says, everyone. I don't, just in case there's any idea or any thought or any misunderstanding, that means everyone. That doesn't just mean people you like or people that are comfortable for you to be around or people who are easy to serve. Everyone. Jesus set the standard when he taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan hated the Jew, but he saw him beaten and bloodied on the street, and he did for him what the other Jews would And he took him home, or he took him to a hotel, and he left enough money that he could be taken care of. He made sure that he was served well. <clears throat> Everyone believers me and have opportunity to help. We should help. If we can help, we must help. We've got to do good to everyone. If you are spending time watching television and see your neighbor out struggling with something or, or, or see them having, or know that they're having some issue, turn off your TV and serve your neighbor. You're not going to gain any fruit from TV. Well, not good fruit anyway. And I'm not saying that you don't take Sabbath, you know, that you don't rest. Absolutely everyone needs rest. But no, notice, when you have opportunity, every time it presents itself, if you can help, you must help. We're commanded to this. This is what we're told to do as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who have the Holy Spirit within us. But then he puts a qualifier on it, especially the household of faith. Anything you are willing to do outside these doors, and I'm talking like this is our building, anything you're willing to do outside of our people, you should be much more willing to do inside of our people. For example, if you see a charity, man, I just love what they're doing. I'm all about, I want to help them. So I'm going to start giving money to this charity. Don't, don't hear me telling you not to give money to charity. I'm glad. If you've got a heart of compassion and you want to do a good deed in the world and you want to 
help support a good, a good cause, I'm all for it. Do it. Please do it. But don't give that charity instead of making sure that the mission of the church can be accomplished because you're not giving to it. You see, don't decide you're going to help the world before you help your church. And, and, and he speaks in universal terms, but we, it's difficult for us to see universal means, so we have to apply this, uh, apply this at a local level. Don't support the world until you're supporting one another. And before you start spending all this time and all your weekends off doing some good deed with some, with some organization that's not faith-based or, or that's not gospel-centered, make sure that you're not taking up all your time that you can't be serving the people of your church because you have gifts and ability that God's given specifically, every one of you do, specifically to see this church blessed and the people of this church blessed. And don't go using your talents, the 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 um, or, or your time. I'm sorry. Don't don't use your time. Don't use your money. Don't use your talents. The the gifts and ability you have. Don't use them outside. Don't spend all your time and all your free time. Don't spend it on the world if you're not willing to give it to the church. And I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking about the people. That's what he calls us to. We're not to be deceived, and we're not to grow weary in doing these good things. Now let's just tie it all back up together with what we started with. I started telling you about this great organization that's seeing great results as they do good things in Chicago. I love the idea of what they're doing. I love what they're about. But it would be so easy for us to step back and send money to that thing and to just be about, well, let's just support it from afar when, you know, the best thing we could do, probably the, the most fruitful thing, the real fruit, the lasting eternal fruit we could do is send that money to churches that are in that area to work to see the gospel bring change. Because everything they're doing right now, it may work for a while, but it's not really getting to the root cause. They want to get to the root cause. The root cause is fallenness. It's our flesh. And only the gospel answers that problem. Only the gospel fixes that. Only the power of the Spirit inside of us makes a difference. So here's what we need to do, I think, in, in terms of these things. And it's interesting, this has come up in more than one occasion. It's not that we don't give money. Sure, we give money as we're able. We, we, we give money, we, we give support. But more importantly, we take the effort, and not just the easy way out, but we take the effort to put the gospel on the ground around the people we're trying to see change. For example, in Africa, this trip I'm taking to Africa, there's all kind of things going on in Africa, drilling wells and, and trying to make it a better world to live in. And every time that this group goes over, this group from this other church goes over, they, they hear, man, if... If we just had a better way to get water, if we just had this, if we just had that, if we had these physical needs met, we would be set. Yeah, you'd feel better. But when you die, you'd still be hopeless. And you'd still be only sowing from your flesh, reaping corruption. And I care too much about people to leave them in that place. That's what they're, if that's where they want to stay, I can't change that. 
but I can certainly make sure they hear the message of the gospel. You can make sure they hear the message of the gospel and see the power of the Spirit alive in you so that they then are able to have that same Spirit along with you. We're not, we're not bad-mouthing or hating on the world. We're loving it in, in, in its best and, and striving to act in its best interest. But what we do out there should already be going on inside of here. So I want you to consider where you're at. Are you following these commands? Have you devoted your time, treasure, and talents to things outside the church while not making sure that the people in your church and that the mission that the church is trying to see accomplished can be accomplished. It costs money to live in this place. It needs We need people to serve. We need people to fill in. And we got things to do. And it takes people to get a job done. And it takes time. And it takes effort. I'm not saying don't be involved. You need to be involved. But it starts here. Or are you possibly deceived? Are you living a lie? Are you thinking in some way that you are working your way up to prove to God that He should save you? It's not going to happen. Trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way. Then, as the Spirit comes in and begins to do His work, you take hold of that work and you live in accordance with the leading of the Spirit. Do not be deceived. Do not grow weary. Let's pray. Father, you're good and you're gracious and you're loving and we are so thankful for that. But, but you, didn't, you didn't save us and leave us where we were. You saved us and you put us someplace else. And we are grateful for that. And we're grateful that you give us opportunity to do real good. That will reap real fruit and lasting eternal fruit. God, we are grateful that we can be a part of your work. I pray, God, I pray that you will give us strength, that you'll give us commitment, that you'll through your Spirit working us, the fruit that's necessary to stay to the task and to, to hear and, and respond to the truth and that, that would keep us from being deceived and that would keep us moving on. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. Pray, God, that You would just work that out in our lives, bring conviction as necessary. And Father, call us to respond to You, to live according to Your teaching. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.